This is Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing, and you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Eric Schwartzman to talk about his book, The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing, published by C.F. Kane and Sons. Eric Schwartzman is a digital marketing consultant, entrepreneur, and author of an earlier book, Social Marketing to the Business Customer. Eric has led digital marketing initiatives for Boeing, Cirque du Soleil, Johnson & Johnson, North American Aerospace, Defense Command, NORAD, those are the people that track Santa Claus. The Olympic Games, the U.S. Department of State, and dozens of small and mid-sized companies. Eric is the host of two podcasts, the Earn Media Podcast and the B2B Legion Podcast. His library of on-demand digital marketing training courses have more than a quarter million enrollees worldwide. Eric has been featured in Adweek, Business Insider, Forbes, Hollywood Reporter, PR Week, Variety, and VentureBeat. And interesting fact, he oversaw media relations for the 30th anniversary of Star Wars, and he handled the marketing and public relations for Britney Spears. Eric, congratulations on the digital pivot, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. You know, the other one that I, like, I do like to mention when people get into my Britney days is before I was married, I also represented the Pussycat Dolls. Oh, respect, yo. Hey, that's so interesting. And, you know, you hosted, you, were, you dealt with the 30th anniversary of Star Wars. You dealt with Britney Spears. Your son must think you are the coolest dad in the world. Is that true? Well, no, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> that that's the case. First off, when I did Star Wars, you know, he was like three or four, so he was too young to appreciate it. And when I did uh, Britney, he was even younger than that. So, oh, okay. And, I, and even if it, even if he was of age, I think he always sort of, you know, takes what I do with a grain of salt. I know my kids do that too, but same for my wife. But that's not important, Eric. So, your book. After reading it, I realized, well, a lot of things I realized. <laughs> I realized why some things I'd been doing long, wrong over the years. More likely, I was realizing why certain things have gone wrong at client companies or, or challenges that I hear about a lot. 
But I realized that I've dealt with a lot more companies that needed to make the digital pivot than I realized at the time. In other words, this gave me like a lens through which I will now look at all companies that I speak to afterwards and and understand that it was more than just something simple that they needed. There was a a real mindset change. And your book really helped me understand that. I'm probably going to recommend this to I talk to a lot of companies where they they're just not ready. And I, you know, you you never want to turn business away, but I think I'm the only one telling them that sometimes. I say, you know, you gotta there's a few other things we need to get squared away first. So let me just read a couple of sections from the book to set the stage for the listener. You write Digital business is the California gold rush of the modern ages, and search engine optimization, SEO, is its mantra. SEO is the art and science of making web content discoverable through Google. Of the 100,000 prospectors who set out to stake their claim, very few found gold. But a guy named Sam Brennan made the equivalent of $4 million a month selling picks and shovels. Today, there are more bloggers, podcasters, and SEO gurus out there selling online courses and services than there are small and mid-sized businesses making money. But there are some that have found a way to generate revenue online. This book is about how to become one of them. Those new to digital marketing can fall prey to an online influencer promoting a get-rich-quick course or costly but ineffective subscription service. Or they rush out onto social media before they have a way to convert leads or otherwise generate revenue. The truth is, before you're ready to pivot to digital marketing, you need a big-picture understanding of what it takes to build and operate a digital business. A website, social media, and search engine optimization are all just pieces of a much larger puzzle. This book explains how they fit together. A lot of people don't want to hear this. They assume it's too complicated for them to grasp, and they shut down. They want simple answers, a get-rich-quick scheme. So they squander precious time panning for gold downstream instead of mining at the source. Meanwhile, competition online gets stiffer every day. It's not that difficult to understand digital business or digital marketing. I wrote this book to make that knowledge accessible to anyone interested. New ways of doing business like driving demand, generating leads, and transacting e-commerce shouldn't be a mystery. I organized this book to introduce you to the steps you need to take in order of importance. Now, Eric, I want to do something a little bit different. If you'll indulge me, I want to go all the way to page 367 of the book because I love the way you summed it up. And it's it's not a spoiler alert, but it's something enormously helpful. And I think a lot of listeners are challenged with this. Okay, this is after all all the book, all the pages. Now that you have a better understanding of the pieces of the digital marketing puzzle, you're going to want to share what you've learned with friends, family, and coworkers on your own. It's hard to explain what digital marketing is to someone who knows nothing about it and hasn't read this book. Don't sweat it. I'm including a cheat sheet to help you explain digital marketing to someone who knows zero about everything you just learned. Use any or all of these answers when someone asks, what is digital marketing and how do you do it? And I thought this was so applicable because I deal with a lot of business owners, and they're not stupid people at all. They're just not familiar with a lot of this, and they, they really do want to know. And this is something for, for me, it reminded me of a lot of marketers who are challenged. They're, they're always trying to educate their companies on what digital marketing can do for them, and there's sort of an antiquated notion of what marketing is, sort of like the fourth P of promotion. So you've got on here the 10 things to say, and I think that this is really helpful. Again, for another reason, I think marketers have an image problem, and they they use a lot of language that's not understood. 
and the people don't understand uh, how it's related to growing a business. So you've got a few on here. You've got 10, actually. You say, I figure out which people visiting my website are most likely to buy from me and focus my sales efforts on them. And that's a whole chapter on data-driven marketing, for instance. Another one is, I make sure it's easy for my customers to get information about what I sell on my website so they can buy more stuff from me. The third one is, if my website goes down or loads too slowly on people's phones, they leave and I lose money. So I monitor my website's performance. And if there are problems, I get them fixed quickly. Next one, I research the words people search for when they're looking for things I sell and make sure to use those same words on my website so I can get found through Google. There's a whole chapter on SEO, for instance. Another one is, I write persuasive web copy that uses rhymes, repetition, stories, and metaphors to capture and keep people's attention online. I write emails that get sent to thousands of people who have signed up to receive updates from my company. The key word there is they have signed up (laughs) to receive updates. Again, whole chapter on email marketing. I write articles about unique ideas for my website so my brand is seen as a thought leader instead of a thought repeater. Whole chapters on content marketing. I write articles, produce webinars, record podcasts, and make videos for people searching for answers to problems that my company solves. I build visibility and credibility for my company by getting reporters and online influencers to say good things about us and recommend our products. And the last one is, I get people to follow my company on social media so when people check us out, they see a community that endorses our point of view. I just thought it was brilliant how you translated that for everyone. So in the book, you talk about how digital marketing uh, or migrating an existing business to digital marketing is like a a ballerina doing a pirouette. And I want to read just one last excerpt and then ask you to talk about the, the four steps. You write, no one would take a ballet teacher seriously who promised students they'd be prima ballerinas at the New York City Ballet in a four-hour work week (laughs) because it's understood that mastery of this centuries-old art form comes through well-defined stages of training. It takes years to achieve. Digital business, on the other hand, is in its infancy, so there's a ton of confusion about what it is and how to do it well. Many fall prey to digital self-help gurus who promise overnight success with SEO, YouTube, and Facebook ads. But these approaches all fail for the same reason. They apply the steps out of sequence. The fact is you need to learn to walk before you can run. These gurus will tell you all you need is traffic or visitors to your website, but it's a false promise. You don't just need traffic, you need the right traffic. And you need to know what to do with the traffic after it arrives. Traffic's like a pair of toe shoes. You'll need the choreography to execute a pivot term. And you go on to talk about the four stages of the of the marketing digital marketing pivot. And you write that like a young dancer who rushes onto stage prematurely, eager to spin in her very first pair of toe shoes, only to fall. Most businesses pull back the curtain on their new website before they're ready to perform. (laughs) Okay, I'm finished talking. The rest of the interview, it's going to be Eric doing most of the talking. But Eric, can you walk us through these four steps and explain why the order is rather important? Sure. And thanks so much for having me. uh, I'm really excited to be on your podcast because... um, you are known as the podcast for marketing books, and it is an honor to be recognized uh, by you and to be featured on this podcast. Well, I appreciate your kind words. 
So for 10 years, I led a two-day seminar for the Public Relations Society of America called the Social Media Boot Camp, which I created, and I would teach once a month in some state, you know, all over the country. And I would always plan in December to do my New York session so that I could take my family right off the trip and, you know, have a pre-holiday uh, um, trip to New York. And we would go see uh, My Wife Likes Ballet. So she would get tickets to see The Nutcracker by the oh. New York City Ballet. Mm-hmm. And um, one year she got up really early and, uh, you know, the day the tickets went on sale and she got us front row center seats. And it was incredible. Like you could literally lean forward in your seat and look down on the in the orchestra pit. Mm. And um, when the dancers came on stage and when the prima ballerinas performed their solos and they spin around on the tip of their toe... You know, they look almost like a music box fairy that turns around without moving any part of their body. And it's really glorious. Um, and and you look at that and you think, wow, that is fantastic. And people just, you know, your jaw drops. My God, how do they do it? Recently, the Disney Channel picked up a series called On Point. And it was all about the kids who try to get an apprenticeship at the New York City Ballet. And these kids make huge sacrifices. You know, it's very competitive. They only take a few kids. These are kids that are on trains, you know, after school for two hours to go uh, practice at at uh, at the ballet school. And you see that, you know, while it may be beautiful to see this ballerina on her tippy toes twirling around with her arms extended, it doesn't start there. You know, behind the scenes is a ton of training and a ton of discipline that goes into it. And I think the, the reason most companies fail online is because all they see is, you know, the account on social media that's engaged and has a lot of likes and comments uh, or the, um, the brand that's getting a lot of coverage in the media. And they think, wow, that's terrific. I want to do that too. But they don't really think about the training that went into it. So I break down and liken a digital pivot to a pirouette, which is what ballet masters call the spin on the point of the toe. And I break it down in media channels. Um, and the first channel, I, I believe there is, a, there is a sequential logic to a digital pivot, uh, which starts with getting your balance and your stability. And that is owned media. And I defined owned media as either your website or custom mobile app. And when I say your website, I mean it lives at a top-level domain that you own. You control the layout of the page because whoever controls the layout controls the payout. And no one is going to take a commission out of each sale that you sell like they would if you made a sale on Grubhub or if you made a sale on Amazon. So step one, owned media. Um, once you find your balance, right, you're ready to sort of push off. Uh, that's step two. When you have conversations on social networks with online influencers, you're doing so in front of their followers, which widens your reach. So, and, and the important thing to understand is that on social media, reach is a factor of engagement. Unless people like, comment, and share, no one sees it. Mm-hmm. So, so step two, pushing off 
is shared media, social media, and it's about figuring out where your customers are most active online and who they trust so you can find your access. The fastest way to build an online following is by winning the respect of existing influencers in your space. Um, and, and really, what's the value of, of that, of shared media? You know, the value of shared media, I believe, really is an engaged community of followers that serve as social proof that others endorse what you have to say. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that people are going to click through from social media to your site and make a, make a purchase. Some will do that, but I think that is, as, as if you look at your revenue attribution over time, social is not going to be a big driver for most companies. It's more going to be uh, a proof point that potential customers check to make sure you're legit. Step two, shared media. Mm-hmm. Step three, earned media. So in the old days, when I started back in PR, you know, that was pre-internet. We would send press kits in the mail and pitch people via phone. Yeah. There are no press kits anymore. People go to your website. Mm-hmm. If, they, if your website doesn't look good, you don't get the story. Um, and, of course, reporters are people, too. They're going to look at your social presence and see, you know, is does anyone give a shit about what you have to say? I, I, I snuck in a swear word there. Hopefully that worked. <laughs> it's okay. That'll, that'll pass. Um, so, so that's step two, earned media. The interesting thing about earned media is earned media really is the leverage point because earned media is the third-party testimonial, the third-party endorsement. And if that third party comes from an influencer, people tend to trust what other people say about you more than what you say about yourself. So it has the greatest potential for growth. Um, And of course, you know, in social, the objective is to establish yourself as a thought leader. Um, And then the last channel is paid media. You know, and I I think it's important to, to recognize that once owned, shared, and earned are in place, once they're operational, you should have a sense of what percentage of visitors to your website result in a sale. You should also have a sense of what a value, the value, a lifetime value of a customer is. And if you have those two numbers, you have some certainty on which to decide how much to invest in advertising. Um, And I I think probably the biggest mistake I see made over and over again are people just like the, as I said in the book, you know, the ballerina rushes onto stage before she's ready to, pirouette and comes tumbling down you know you see people rushing out onto social or rushing into paid particularly those two yeah before they've got their funnel in place before yes. they're ready to actually convert leads into into customers and so that's the sequential approach that i lay out in the book yes now you write that of the four media types owned shared earned and paid owned media is the most misunderstood and overlooked. Why, why do you think that is? What's going on there? So most marketers, people in marketing, have been sort of ancillary to the process of selling something and billing something and servicing, you know, a customer. You know, we, we, te- we tend to just in the past lead the horse to water and then hope that they drink. We've never been responsible for getting them to drink as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but online, and, and this is kind of was was my career arc. I started in PR. Um, I, I got I got into the internet. I launched a SaaS company called IPR Software, which was a 
still around. It's a content management system for managing online newsrooms. And, you know, I saw early on in that process when I launched that company that when com- when customers were up for renewal, they would say, well, what's the value of this? I said, well, look at all these people that are coming to your website. Yeah, but they're not buying anything. <laughs> they're not becoming customers. And the thing is, they hadn't really done a very good job of building a funnel or merchandising their site. So it was true. I, I had led the horse to water, but they weren't drinking. And then I thought to myself, my gosh, I've, if I'm, if I'm going to continue to sell my product, I've got to get good at the conversion optimization process as well. And that's not something most people understand or know how to do. It's usually something that's left to coders or, or people who are, are engineers. But, you know, that's less the case now. There are a number of tools um, that are available to marketers that you can master uh, for, you know, built, putting pop-ups on your site that would allow you to offer some sort of a conversion opportunity uh, to publish forms to your site. Um, to add live chat to your site, um, and to feed all that into a, a CRM where you can nurture a pipeline, um, email marketing as well. I mean, all these things are now integrated into a website. Um, or capable of being integrated. One of the, well, the people who do it right. So, yeah. I, and there, there's, I think I use this example in the book. So, you know, if you've been to Universal Studios and gone on the back lot of a movie studio, you see all these buildings, which are not really buildings. They're just sort of facades that mm-hmm. are built against the walls of a soundstage. Yeah. And if you were to go open a door, there'd be nothing there, right? I, I kind of think most websites are like that. Yes. I you loved know, how you presented that in the book. But 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 a website, really, what it is, is it's a portal into a digital business. Mm-hmm. Right. Somehow you've got to be able to accept customer contact information or sell something through through that website. And the website doesn't do that. That's other software that does that. And I, I think most marketers miss this. They don't understand the concepts, simple concepts like end-to-end solutions, interoperable technology, stacks, automation, mm-hmm. funnels. And you don't need to be a master of this stuff. You can hire people to do the actual work, but you do need to understand the foundation. Like you don't have to be a screenwriter or a cinematographer to produce a movie. You don't have to be a bricklayer or a carpenter to build a house, right? You don't have to be a software engineer to lead a digital pivot. But you do need to know how to sequence the specialties because if you don't dig trenches for your drains before you pour your concrete, right. you can't come back and do that. The same thing with with analytics, right, which is why I cover that early in the book. Yeah. If you don't capture uh, the metrics around who's converting, you can't go back and get that after the fact, and you can't optimize what you can't measure. So there really is a logical sequence to this stuff. And the truth is, you know, we're learning this as we go here. But I mean, after 20 years doing it, this is sort of my perspective on how to organize and orchestrate and quarterback a digital pivot with specialists in a logical sequence so that the probability of success is much higher. Yeah. And in the book, you talk about a general contractor you talk about putting the pipes in before the foundation. One of the big things that a general contractor adds is they know the correct sequence, <laughs> the order. In other words, they're not trying to build the roof before they do the foundation. And that's, uh, for me, it was a big takeaway in the book. Let me just underscore one other thing before we move on about the order of things. You write, if you don't have a website that's easy to use, well thought out, and answers the right questions to drive revenue, 
What is the point of investing time and energy engaging prospects on LinkedIn or Instagram? Why spend time on social media outreach if you're not prepared to convert that engagement into purchase consideration or transactions on your website? Engaging and building community on social media is no substitute for a bad website. (laughs) And there are more lousy websites out there than there are good social media marketers. Social media has its time and place, but until your website is ready for business, you're not ready to pivot because your website is where you convert leads to revenue. So, and then you all go on to underscore what you already mentioned about, you know, uh, traffic to your website from social networks is just not as good as traffic to your website from Google. And, you know, own media is always going to be a much more powerful lead generation uh, channel. But there's a very important point you make here. And this is one that I deal with a lot. It's on page 43, where you, you write about learning to pivot has become so integral in business today. Explain why you can't just hire someone to do it for you. It's just not something that you can outsource. It's sort of like it brought to mind another analogy you had in the book about the body rejecting the organ. And the um, the subhead I put this under is minding your own business. Yeah. You know, I mean, you you can't have someone else. Like, so here here's an example I think I used in the book as well. When, when I was running um, uh, IPR software, um, one of our clients was Target retailer and um they were one of our first clients and i remember you know after a few drinks uh with the client at a dinner when everyone was sort of relaxed asking uh the client we'd won the business already but asking the client you know gosh your target you know you're huge why would you be hiring us to handle your online newsroom how come you wouldn't do that yourself yeah and they said you know we focus our limited IT resources on reinforcing our core competency. And that's retailing on razor thin margins. So anything we can buy off the shelf, you know, we're going to buy it off the shelf because we can't buy that off the shelf. Right. So they're minding their own business where it matters. Right. Okay. So, so, um, and I would say, okay, at the time, at the time, I think it sounds like they were looking at it through an IT lens. Well, I mean, everyone's got limited IT resources. Yeah. And so anything that requires IT support, you're going to look at through an IT lens, hmm. right? Well, I guess I, I thought I thought it was interesting and very confident of you to ask that question. And it seems like I, if I had to guess, they're doing it themselves now. But at the time, they were outsourcing it. Right, because e-commerce as a percentage of all revenue was single digit. Mm-hmm. Now e-commerce is you know a significant share of their revenue. So you can't outsource it anymore. Right? right. Once like like think about all these restaurants that were laid bare during the pandemic, you know, they had to figure out a way to pivot online. They got square for restaurants. They started accepting orders from Postmates and Grubhubs and Uber Eats. And um and then they realized, you know, probably 12 months into it, my god, we're paying out 15 to 30% off the bottom line on every order. My, can we afford this? Well, no, you can't afford that anymore. You've, you need your own infrastructure. You need your own media presence to handle that. So you're not paying out 15 to 30%. And they start, they're starting now to realize the difference between customer acquisition, customer retention. It's fine to acquire the customer through Uber Eats or Grubhub, but you can't retain them through that channel and pay out 15 to 30% in perpetuity, or you're, it's not a sustainable business anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, as 
the internet and digital becomes a bigger slice of everybody's bottom line. And particularly in an environment where all these big tech brands are trying to wiggle their way in between sellers and buyers with these online marketplaces, um, having a, a, an owned media presence is becoming more important than ever. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have it, you're going to be paying out that that commission on every sale, and it's unsustainable. I would not be surprised. I think it'll take a long time, but I would not be surprised to see Congress step in at some point and and legislate on this. Because, you know, there are laws around commissions in the real estate industry, a more mature industry. So if you hire someone to lease your commercial real estate, uh, there's going to be a declining percentage that the salesperson will be paid on renewals. That doesn't exist um, in the digital space. Hmm. This stuff's so new, it hasn't caught up yet. Yeah, and I back to the Wild West or the Gold Rush, it brings to mind, and, and people that can help you, and... You know, the, I think maybe in one point in the book, you you may have talked about, you know, you got to be careful who you hire, what their expertise is. You know, you're going to be finding suppliers who, you know, what's the expression? When, I, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They, they right. offer any number of services, but they may not be the ones that you need. Right. And, and I see this a lot. And, and you talk about it again at the very end where, like, you don't, you don't have the graphic designer that laid out your website – don't expect them to understand search engine optimization. And John Jansen, his book, SEO for Growth, <laughs> talked about that quite a bit. So with that in mind, let's talk about digital monkey business. <laughs> okay. I, I, and the reason why is I see this a lot. You yeah. write, unfortunately, there are bad actors out there giving lead generation a bad name. Let me shine a light on these monkeys so you can recognize them and steer clear. Who, who are some of these bad monkeys that companies need to be aware of. I mean, I every day I'm seeing people connect, try to connect with me on LinkedIn, or I see these ads, not just spammers and all that, but all these lead gen people. And I don't think the companies that are hiring them know really what they do, but they're, it's almost like they, they're buying a lottery ticket. I was speaking with a, um, a friend, a client in Australia. Um, you know, less mature market digitally, a lot of smart people doing great stuff, mm-hmm. but not, you know, as quite as, as far along in the process as, as the U.S. market. And we were talking about this lead generation. And I said to um, him, hey, you know, you really should think about how you can you know, start using your website to generate leads so you're not doing it all manually. And he said, lead generation? I don't know about that. I get the emails from lead generation people all the time. And I said, oh, send me some of those emails. Mm-hmm. So he sent me those emails. And what they were were um, those emails you get once in a while from someone who's going to sell you a list of email addresses. Okay, yeah. And so the perception from, the, from, from this guy was that that's lead generation. Mm. And, and if you think about it, right, there are, you know, there are sort of known spoken problems that people have, problems they're willing to admit that they have. There are known unspoken problems they have, problems they have that they're not willing to admit. And then there are unknown problems they have. Problems that they aren't even aware they have. If I, if I would if I would have said to him, "Hey, you need a sequential approach uh, to uh, you know owned, shared, earned, and paid media," he, it would have just com- been completely over his head. So we were talking about lead generation, but even for lead generation, perception of what lead generation was was skullduggery. You know, this guy, these guys out of India selling these lists mm-hmm. that are harvested online that are going to wind up getting his, you know, his his 
top-level domain, probably blacklisted by you know a number of different you know companies because he's sending out spam because he's carpet bombing and he doesn't even realize that doesn't even know what the can spam act is Mm -hmm. um so that i think is probably in the world of monkey business that's probably the biggest subset but then the other uh group are are sort of these sort of se people who talk talk about themselves as being search engine optimization specialists Mm. and i know you know we're mostly marketers listening to this but for the one or two people who aren't search engine optimization is the art and science of creating content most likely to rank in google and there are a lot of uh, people out there that will sell you uh, links to your website from link farms and um you know those Link farms are seen as toxic by Google. They actually score negatively against you. You know, you hang out in bad neighborhoods, bad things happen. Um, and that's a whole nother category that people sort of get into that aren't familiar with this stuff, um, only to realize, my gosh, it didn't work. Um, and then I would say the last are these sort of social media gurus who say, hey, you know, build a group on Facebook, you know, figure out a way to uh, get followers on TikTok or or build a room on Clubhouse, and that's how you'll build your audience. But what they leave out is, you know, when you build an audience on Facebook, on TikTok, or on 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 um, Clubhouse, you're not building your audience; you're building their audience. Yeah, right? yeah. And they can take it away with an algorithm tweak at a moment's notice. Absolutely. Those are sort of the three monkeys, the, mon- the monkey business that goes on in the area of digital marketing that I think, you know, gives lead gen a bad name. Yeah. And I remember in the book, you mentioned, uh, you know, if you build your audience, like with the, the last one, you mentioned the social media, it can get taken away just like it did a recent U.S. president. Yeah. <laughs> it just vanished. You know, interestingly enough, yesterday in the news, I saw he had launched a blog as a way, as a sort of stopgap measure to sort of, you know, still get his voice out. And he, he shut it down yesterday because it didn't catch on quick enough. Now, I'll bet you, had he launched the blog when he still had the platform and sort of capturing email addresses and mobile phone numbers, he would have been able to sustain his momentum without relying on a third party. Yeah, a good example of not having your owned media. You know what? I bet he, he started to read your book. <laughs> Hey, interesting note, interesting note that not many people talk about. Yes, uh, January 6th was the day of the insurrection and the day he was deplatformed, but it was also the day that, that the Democrats got control of the Senate. So from a legislative, strategic legislative standpoint, I think it was Facebook and Twitter's attempt to avoid regulation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? That's not something I know a whole lot about, but I just, that was such a great example that was very visible. But there's plenty of other folks that realized that the whole thing just went away. Might have been a, a mistake. The other, <clears throat> the other thing is, I just want to jump to the one part about email marketing, because again, you've got an entire chapter on it. You talk about the importance of a sender reputation. And that's something that always surprises people when I'm down in the weeds trying to explain it to them. And I always think that. Buying a list for your company is like having your company involved in unprotected sex. It is a really bad idea, in my experience, to buy a list from somebody. Can you explain this concept of the sender reputation and and how it can come back to bite you? Well, I mean, if you receive email 
first of all, I receive email every day from people that I want that I don't open. Stuff I signed up for. Yes, but, but you I, signed up for it. <laughs> yeah, but I still delete it. So sure. imagine if something gets through that I didn't sign up for. And the yeah. likelihood that I'm going to open it and, and act on it is so slim. And, I, and, and on the other hand, the likelihood that I'm going to say, who is this and market as spam is actually probably higher than the likelihood that I'm going to take the action that you'd like me to take. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that information is being monitored by Gmail, by Yahoo, by AOL, by, you know, all the um, uh, different uh, ISPs that are out there. So, you know, if you start to build a reputation for yourself as a spammer, the likelihood that you're going to land in the inbox goes down. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to start getting over to the promo box or you're going to move over to the trash, right? You're going to go over to um, social. But it gets worse. Or, yeah, it gets worse. You could actually have all your email from your top-level domain blocked at the server level from anybody at that organization once you're marked as a spammer. You can repair it, but the number of hours it's going to take you, I mean, is is going to be dizzying. So, I I mean, there's just I mean, the fact that people still buy these lists just shows you, you know, that it is still the Wild West and people are still making money on picks and shovels. Mm, yeah. Well, let's go back to uh, – there, there were two – one thing? Oh, yeah, please. Because you mentioned you know, an entire chapter on SEO, an entire chapter on, on, um, on email. What I'd like to, the, 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 what I'd like to uh, stress is that it's just a chapter. <laughs> there are books on email. There are books on SEO. There are books on podcasting, blogging, content marketing, Absolutely. conversion optimization. So, but what I didn't see was one book that covered everything soup to nuts at a high level, not too technical, with some interesting stories, you know, that any that the general business reader could appreciate. That's why I think David Pogue agreed to write the foreword, because he's the same thing. He's about making technology easy to understand. This book is an overview book for someone who needs a primer. And also, I think, for someone on the marketing side who wants to figure out how the pieces fit together um, to understand it soup to nuts. And I will say also, since this is a podcast, um, I did record it as an audio book as well with myself reading it. So it's available to listen to as well if you prefer. Oh, good. Yeah, it was interesting uh, in the the intro that uh, David, who's an author and CBS Sunday Morning correspondent, he talked about how he gave a talk in 2012 uh, to a number of executives from a $13 billion corporation. And afterwards, he said, can I email this to your CEO because you all have been so nice to me? And they said, oh, no, she's not on email yet. And he wrote, this wasn't 1850, this was 2012. <laughs> so I thought that was great. But it's also, yes, you cover in one chapter things that are covered in entire books. But I meet a lot of companies who, whether they say it or not, feel like they just don't even know where to start. They don't understand what goes first. And there are yeah. so many shiny disco balls, so many shiny objects out there that they just don't quite know where to start. So let me get into, uh, there were um, two chapters that were my favorites out of all of them. Okay. Um, <laughs> and they were all good chapters, but, and I don't mean to make the other chapters feel bad, but you're right. This is primarily a book about digital marketing, but doing business digitally also requires cross-functional collaboration. And what separates the winners from the losers is back-end 
technology that crisscrosses through every part of their organization. To make you a successful digital marketer and earn you a seat at the boardroom table, let's look at what it takes to build a digital sales pipeline and forecast revenue against the analytics. And then in the next couple of pages, you write, pivoting to digital is pivoting to software. And despite what some vendors may tell you, one size never fits all. So while you don't need an engineering degree, you do need to understand some basic principles. Even if you're just in marketing or sales, having an understanding of how systems fit together better equips you for a leadership role. The reason I like this chapter so much is that I learned more in this chapter than I had in, in, in any of the others. But I mean, I read a lot of these books, and I'm, I'm very, very interested in these topics. But this was a new area, and the way you explained it, I really uh, appreciated it. But anyone, anyone listening who's li- looking at buying or adding to their, you know, their all their technology platforms, you need to read this chapter. It will save you a fortune. Now, we mentioned the word technology stack earlier. Can you explain what that? is. What what is technology stack? This is very important. So I, I mentioned that the website is really just a portal into a digital stack or a digital business or a collection of software tools that just one piece integrate of the puzzle. with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one piece of the puzzle. That's right. So what are the other pieces? Well, you got to be able to issue an invoice. You got to be able to ship a product. You got to be able to provide services to, to customers if they if they need service. And if you're doing that with all different software that doesn't talk to each other, you're going to be cutting and pasting information all day long. So the difference between the winners and losers in digital are companies that can satisfy the customer need quickest and easiest are the ones that win. So that's not just about making it easy for the customer on the front end to buy. It's about making it easy for the company to process on the back end as too. And and there are really two types of software. Typically, what backbones the front end is a CRM or customer relationship management package. People on this uh, podcast are probably familiar with that. But what you may not be familiar with is the software on the back end, which is called ERP software, Enterprise Resource Processing Software, which is everything from your HR to your payroll to your bill of materials. It's basically how you manage capacity supply against demand. So if those two things are talking to each other, you get velocity. The path to purchase is as fast as the path to process. A lot of people don't really understand that. They think, oh, well, what's the problem? Why, why aren't we doing more business? Well, we're not doing more business because there's some bottleneck in mm-hmm. our infrastructure. Um, for some reason, the people in shipping or the people in services aren't able to service the business quick enough. Let's talk about it in terms of a consultant, because there's probably a lot of people that listen to this that are in consulting. So in the consulting process, right, you pitch the client the business, you give them a proposal. If they sign and they want to do business with you, then you need a project plan for how you're going to deliver the services that you proposed. Well, if you've got one way of doing a proposal and another way of managing projects, then you're going to re-enter that content over again. Whereas if you have a CRM and an ERP talking to each other, you're just going to push a button and that proposal is going to become a project plan. It's going to be manageable. Uh, there are going to be milestones that you can bill against, you know, without necessarily have to, having to set those up from scratch. And it really is that level of automation that gives you the velocity to 
outcompete and do more with less and 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 get what the customer wants quicker and faster. Right, and you write, what is it that successful innovators do that others don't? Tech stacks that kill off the competition do one thing better than everyone else. They make it easy to do business with a company from beginning to end in a digital environment. And you talk about some of these friction points that suppress the velocity you just referred to, like requiring a customer to call or email to complete a transaction or requiring them to print a document and sign it and scan it. Any kind of rekeying of information, asking customers to email or fax anything at all. But it's also tricky because it it introduces a lot of disruption into the organization. And this is interesting. You write, over the years, I've seen firsthand how technology disrupts industries, organizations, and lives. When two applications can automatically talk to one another, they often make the old way of doing things obsolete. If the people who did those things manually prior to the pivot can't be retrained and reassigned, they're going to be out of a job, just like this character from one of my favorite movies, Office Space. What you do in Inatech is you take the specifications from the customers and you bring them down to the software engineers. Yes, yes, that's, that's right. Well, then I just have to ask, why couldn't the customers just take them directly to the, to the software people, huh? Well, uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because engineers are not good at dealing with customers. Uh-huh. So, you physically take the specs from the customer? Well, no. My, my secretary does that, or the facts. Uh-huh. So then you must physically bring them to the software people? Well, no. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. Uh, what, what would you say you do here? Look, I already told you, I deal with the goddamn customers so the engineers don't have to. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people? Eric, I'm sorry, but that just came to mind as I was reading it. You go on to write, integration is a threat to legacy business processes and a threat to the people who perform them. Integrated stacks require less manual data entry, which means fewer data entry jobs. Stacks separate salespeople from their leads, making them more expendable. And they make companies less dependent on individuals to store and retrieve information. So from the organization standpoint, stacks are a good thing. But for those employees unwilling to change the way they work, stacks are reviled and feared. So before we move on to this, I I wanted to ask you to explain if you could, the difference between the, these two approaches, one of which is a, a vertical, vertically integrated tech stack versus what you call these uh, best-of-breed stacks. If, I think if marketers understood or folks understood these two different approaches, it'll be good for them, but they'll also probably realize they may already be in an organization that's trying one or the other. Yeah. So a vertically integrated stack is a collection of tools from one company. So Salesforce has a number of different products, um, sales cloud, marketing cloud, financial cloud, that integrate with each other and can power your entire business. Oracle also has a stack that can power your entire business. Um, Zoho has a stack that can power your entire business. Um, But what you find is that 
with those stacks that can power your entire business, each individual tool may not be as robust as the people who perform those job functions are used to. I'll give an example. Um, if you've got people who are comfortable with uh, the Adobe suite, comfortable with Photoshop or, or um, Illustrator for doing creative uh the creative part of their business, and you say, no, 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 we're going to move over to a different tool that's integrated with the rest of our suite so that we can see how long you were working on this tool and on this file, and, and we can build the file appropriately to, to the customer. You're basically usually sacrificing depth of use, feature depth for interoperability. Um, the other way to go is to build what's called a best of breed stack which is basically a collection of different software tools that are integrated with each other to give you an end-to-end -end solution. And this is usually more common in small business mm -hmm. uh, because the amount of customization required to make a tool like Salesforce, Oracle, or even Zoho um, effective as a, as a vertically integrated solution is usually a little bit more than a small business can afford or has the wherewithal to, um, to, uh, to uh, customize. <clears throat> Best of breed example would be, uh, you know, a tool like WordPress as the portal, as the content management system. Mm -hmm. Um, with maybe a, a forms tool, a forms plugin like Gravity Forms uh, that then maybe pulls uh, registrations into Zoho and, um, and maybe uh, you use Zoho to do your email marketing and to do your online chat on your website so that someone can chat and request service that way as well. Um, the nice thing about Zoho is they also do have the ERP, so they've got the Zoho books, they've got the payroll, they've got the project management, so all that back-end functionality is available to a small business as well. Just to track back on something you were talking about early with respect to, you know, the, uh, the threat of uh, integrated stack to a legacy business, it is a threat, clearly. Um, to a lot of people that work at those companies that perform jobs manually. However, I think if the companies, if legacy companies, you know, small companies or medium-sized companies that were around pre-internet and are now really struggling as a result of, you know, these digital upstarts that are competing against them, if they don't find a way to pivot, right, they're, they're probably going to be out of business. And I think it's also why a lot of these startups come in and eat their lunch is because they don't have to contend with the politics of, you know, legacy business processes. They just set up the stack from the get-go. And next thing you know, they're disintermediating restaurants from their customers, freelancers from their customers, drivers from their customers. Um, you know, examples are through and through. Uber. Um, uh, Postmates, Fiverr. I mean, these are all businesses that are disintermediating an existing class of providers from their customers because the providers don't have own media. Um, so it's a shame, but uh, I think that's kind of where you're headed without an, uh, an own media stack and without interoperable technology. How are you going to compete against digital upstarts that have, that have a way to compete online? So when I've run into companies who say, oh, no, we're switching over to this completely vertically integrated suite. I, I get nervous on their behalf because they're integrated, but each individual thing is not 
often is good. But then you, we talk about being able to integrate these best of breed approaches. Even then, they don't always integrate like you you think they are. Uh, there, there's still other things to do. And that's where, if you could explain, the, let's see, you write that the main reason digital pivots fail is that scoping, implementing, and learning to use stacks requires experience and time that a small business is either unwilling or unable to invest. Can you explain what scoping is? Uh, yeah. A scope of work document and why this is so important and can save a lot of money and uh, 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 and avoid morale problems with an organization that's trying to make this pivot. So I was meeting, I was having breakfast with a medical group yesterday that is doing a pivot. <clears throat> and um, and the, the CEO says to me, I don't understand what the problem is. It's a website. You, you get the website up. What's the big deal? And I said, well, do you know what you want the website to do? He said, yeah, I just, just want to have a, have a few pages. Okay, what's going to be on those pages? Pictures and stuff. How big will those pictures be? I don't know. Well, okay, is there going to be video? Maybe. I'm not sure. Well, how big will the video be? I'm not sure. Uh, Will you collect lead information? Where will that lead information go? Well, we'll just get an email. I mean, they haven't thought it through. Did they regret (laughs) having a a meeting with you? (laughs) So after after I sold iPair Software, I went to work as a chief revenue officer at a $1 billion B2B. And my job was to go through the different divisions and update their software, update their stacks. And so that involved what's called requirements gathering. That's the first step. You go around, you sit with everybody, everybody, and you say, okay, how do you use the computer? What information do you need to get from it? What information do you put into it? Where are the... Stop. Where are the blocks, blockades? Where are the are the bottlenecks? And then you do what's called business process maps. And there's one in the book that actually lays out by swim lane. Each department has a swim lane. What are the different um, uh, interactions that a user has with the system? And business process mapping is actually a, a language. There are certain shapes that indicate certain types of interactions and um, and you basically create that documentation that documentation then defines what you need your your stack to do and what happens most of the time is people just build a website without thinking through what they need their stack to do they just mm-hmm. think oh we'll just put up a, a digital brochure that'll be enough or they just buy a software suite from some company with a very good salesperson who assures them that it's all going to work. I can't tell you how many times I come into a company and we have to take them off. We have to take down their website. We have to migrate everything to a new to a stack because they have no solution and there's no way to get to one. Migrating from one technology solution to another technology solution is like heart, heart transplant surgery. I don't care how well you do it. It is very disruptive mm-hmm. to any business, any time, which is why you always want to pick a solution that doesn't have an eminent sunset. You want to pick a solution that's going to live as long as possible, given the time and energy it's going to cost to deploy that solution. Now, this is a threat of this is the threat of best of breed stacks, just to bring it back full circle. So right now, um, you know, Oracle and Salesforce are integrating with a lot of third-party uh, providers that they don't own. But as they buy up 
solutions and integrate them in, they start to deprecate support for their competitors. Because they right? want you to start using the uh, company they've acquired. Yeah, they want you. They want to be the vertically integrated solution. Yeah, they don't want you using anyone else, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's something to keep in mind if you're best of breed. I mean, for that reason, particularly for small business, I think open source software. You know, if you're not sure what that is, so WordPress, which is a content management system that powers websites, the source code for that technology is in the public domain. So you never have to worry that WordPress is going to stop giving you access to your customer information or that they're going to char start charging you a commission off every sale you generate on their on their um, their platform. But you really do with every other technology, privately owned technology company out there, because as they get purchased by private equity or by investment bankers who are looking for more profits, right, they can do that. They can change their terms of service and they can decide, you know what, you don't get to see your customer's email address anymore. Mm -hmm. I can remember when Facebook on the profile page for, for a friend showed you your friend's email addresses. Well, not anymore. You know, I can remember when you used to be able to consume Facebook off of the platform where you could actually port your feed into a third-party feed reader and consume it there without ads. Not anymore. So what you find is that as these technology companies become more mature, right, they want to squeeze every last nickel out of you. Whereas when they're in growth mode, they'll give away the farm just to get you on the platform. Mm -hmm. Once you're on the platform and once they're dominant in their category, that's when they get more aggressive. And so I th think, you know, open source is probably, you know, the, 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 so the, the platform that has the, the longest life cycle for a small business that's looking to control their, their own destiny without necessarily having to pay out a commission to a third party on every sale. Well, after reading that chapter on stacks and so forth, it seemed to me like hiring a consultant to do a scoping document could be some of the best money you spend in terms of uh, making the digital pivot and growing your business. In construction, they say that any money you spend with an architect or an engineer is the best money you'll spend. Same thing. Yes. Because you know you want to measure twice and cut once. Yeah. Well, let me just, I, there, we literally could talk for four hours, but we don't have that much time. And I've got page after page of things I wanted to ask you. But let me just ask about two other really important things. Uh, and again, as we've talked, there's an entire chapter on SEO and content and email marketing and virality and so forth and so on. You write that unsophisticated digital marketers fail because they invest all their time and money inviting people to their website, but when the guests arrive, the place is a mess. It's not clear where to go or what to do. Some links are broken, and there's no clear path to purchase. Rather than leading a horse to water, you faked them out and led them to a mirage, and this is the most common reason companies fail online. They're doing backflips to get people to their website, but their website sucks. <laughs> and you explain that people need to better understand a marketing funnel. You explain that they need to understand what their marketing funnel is. And let me just put a disclaimer in there. There's no shortage of articles being written on LinkedIn and websites and so forth saying whatever the noun is, what blank is dead. So you'll see SEO is dead. Buyer journey is dead. 
the marketing funnel is dead. All right, stop it, okay? <laughs> this is very important, and it gets a lot of clickbait, but uh, it, it, there's more to it. Can you explain this idea of a, a marketing funnel? And I guess the way you presented it in the book, I was a little surprised that you had to explain it, but I, I then, I, you know, I'm too close to it. I stepped back and realized that a lot of companies don't really understand this idea of the marketing funnel as it relates to their their website and their and their delivery of services. I would honestly say most companies, most people don't understand this stuff at all. I mean, how many times have you been at a party and said something like SEO and someone looks at you, they don't even know what that is? Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, or CRM. When you think about a funnel, right, you have to get people into the funnel. Traffic sources are how you get people into the funnel. Common traffic sources are organic search, people who search something and click. Uh, Email, someone who clicked on an email. Social, someone who came from social media. Referral, someone who came from an article on someone else's website or paid, right? And and all of those are, are going to be percentages of your revenue. So I'm looking at a, uh, a graph here for a client um, in front of me. And I think this is pretty typical, but these guys are doing uh, about a third of their business through organic, about a third through email. And then I would say, you know, the other third is split between social and referral. They're not doing paid. So if you told, if you told them social was dead, you know, that's what 15% of their revenue. If you told them search was dead, that's 30% of their revenue. So revenue attribution with analytics allows you to see uh, you know how you're earning money, where people are coming through, and how they're converting. Um, that's why I cover it at the beginning of the book because you can't go back and capture that information after you've already gotten things underway. But the other, I think, metric that people don't look that uh, often enough is how many interactions there were, digital interactions prior to the transaction. And what I'm seeing for these guys, and this is a company that sells single vineyard wine, so expensive wine, Northern California winery. They're doing 43% of their sales on the first visit. You would think, right, that, gosh, that seems low, doesn't it? Seems like most people would be an impulse purchase, but it's not. You're buying a bottle of wine for $125. You might go to the website and find it. Then you might think, well, maybe I can get a better deal somewhere else. So you'd cut, copy and paste the name of the of the wine, and then you'd search it. And hopefully if there are SEOs in place, they'd come up and then you'd go through and you'd make the, the purchase. That's two interactions, right? Or you might still not make the purchase. You might sign up and download their aroma wheel or their, their wine tasting map. And then we've got your email address. We send you an email and then you purchase. That's on the third interaction. So they're doing 43% on their first interaction, 20% on their, on their second interaction, 7% on their third interaction, and 30% of their business requires four or more digital interactions before mm. they make a, a sale. So really it's about having all these touch points in place. You don't know what channel people are going to come back through. And so you've got to have all your bases covered. If they weren't doing SEO, if they thought SEO was dead, then someone would search the name of the, of the wine on their website and they might find their competitor's wine who had SEO'd against that same wine name 
and now the competitor is going to make the sale. So, you know, it's a multi-channel world. There's a lot of different traffic sources. you got to cover all your bases, and they're all important. Mm-hmm. And again, like so many books that have been on the show, the, the better you understand your customers, uh, what, what are their fears, what's the friction, what is it they want to know, you can work a lot of that into your marketing funnel. So, Eric, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? A digital pivot is sequential. Mm. It's not one step. It's a series of steps. There is a framework in place from owned, shared, earned, and paid. And you need to implement the channels in that sequence to be successful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just like building a house. Oh, and I've seen so many problems where people don't under companies don't understand uh, what they're doing, and I just think there's enormous opportunity for folks like you and marketers out there to help guide their organizations and explain how all this fits together. So, what is just one thing a listener could do today to get started and put in action an idea we've talked about, or, or perhaps an idea from your book? Get your analytics in order. Make sure that they're tracking correctly. Google Analytics out of the box is not necessarily going to be tracking correctly. You know, get with a firm like Trust Insights, make sure that your revenue attribution is correct. Um, The second thing is make sure that you've got Google Search Console up and running so that you're monitoring your search visibility. And the third thing is make sure that you've got Hotjar plugged in so that you can see what the customer experience looks like. Without those three baseline tools, it's going to be very difficult to be a data-driven marketer. Absolutely. And that's why data-driven marketing is one of the very first chapters uh, in the book. And we didn't even go into a lot of the things that uh, companies should be looking at. And one other thing I want to add is that I have run into companies, like I said, more companies that are that need to make this digital pivot than they realize and that I realized. And I can remember over the years saying, well, let's talk about some of your analytics for the website. And they would say, well, we don't, we don't really know. We don't have that information. That's okay, but there's really easy ways to, to get that and get uh, started on that. And also you mentioned Hotjar, which is the heat mapping program. You talked in the blogging section. I thought this was great about Neil Patel and he realized on his blogs, and he has one of the best blogs in the world, that by watching where people were going on the page, they would read the beginning of the blog post, and then they would go all the way down to the bottom, and then they would leave. He realized that his conclusions needed to be a summary <laughs> of what's there. And sure enough, taking that information, he then reorganized the way he did his blog post and got people to go back then and read the whole thing. I thought that was just really interesting. Yeah, I thought was so interesting about that is his conclusion is not actually a conclusion. Instead, he teases what you'll get if you read the post. Right, right, right. So that that was terrific. I appreciate that. And the other morning, I was on a Zoom call with my content director, and I read that whole section to him because I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want him to give him the book yet because I was I needed it for the interview. So, Eric, what books, looking back, have most inspired your work and career? So there's two books uh, I would say that I find just so inspiring and so useful. The first is a book by Matt Church, Peter Cook, and Scott Stein called The Thought Leader's Practice. And what this is, is a book about helping clever people be commercially smart. Hmm. So if you are an advisor 
or consultant, and you make your living by providing guidance to people, this is a book for structuring a practice in a way that is commercially smart. Highly recommended. It's actually a free book. Oh, really? Um, the Thought Leader's Practice. You can download it for free, uh, or you can buy a hard I, I'm copy. looking at it here on Amazon. Yeah, I didn't know about this book. I appreciate that. The second book is a book called Deep Work ah, by yeah. Cal Newport. Uh-huh. And this is a book about staying focused in a distracted world. You know, it's very difficult to create elite-level thought leadership work without sustained attention. And so, you know, each time you change screens back to LinkedIn or back to Facebook or back to email, you're robbing your mind of the ability to go deep and have a discovery. Um, And this book is a practical book about sustaining your attention and how to achieve elite-level thought leadership. Mm. Um, And these books, I would say, probably right now in my life are probably the most influential books I have. Oh, terrific. Well, I didn't know about the the thought leader's practice, but I had heard about deep work, and I should read that. I will if I can, you know, find time to concentrate. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? So there's two. There's two interesting books on my desk uh, that I'm looking at right now. They're both by African-Americans. One is The Blueprint to Sales Enablement Excellence, Sales Enablement 3.0 by Roderick Jefferson. And the next is Create Togetherness, Transform Sales and Marketing to Exceed Modern Buyers' Expectations and Increase Revenue by Jeff Davis. Now, the reason I mention that they're both African Americans is because, you know, I think we've all seen, particularly over the last few years, how stacked the deck is against people of color in this country. And, you know, my my sense is if the deck is that heavily stacked against people of color and you've got thought leaders that happen to be African-American publishing this type of content, it's got to be good because they had it a lot tougher than I did as a white guy. I mean, for me, I was basically born on third base, right? But here's guys who have made made it past where I am, and they're publishing about it. Create Togetherness actually is quoted in my book. It's a fantastic book. And I haven't read uh, Roderick Jefferson's book, Sales Enablement 3.0, yet, but he is incredibly inspiring, incredibly informed about the concept of aligning sales and marketing. And so I'm excited about reading his book. Yeah, so I was excited to see Jeff Davis, and I was actually, I interviewed him about Create Togetherness a while back, and it's one of my favorite subjects, and there haven't been that many books about it. And actually, he introduced me to Roderick, and Roderick was scheduled to come on the podcast, but had to reschedule, and he said he's going to come back later on, because sales enablement is also one of my my favorite topics. He's going to be fantastic. I mean, I had him on my podcast. He's one of my best interviews. Mm, terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, uh, including uh, Eric's sites, uh, his LinkedIn profile, uh, uh, Jeff and Rod- Roderick's books, and some of these others that we uh, mentioned. And listener, if you could do me one big favor, I'd really appreciate it. Please reach out to Eric and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. As you all know, there's over a million podcasts and Eric has decided to spend quite a bit of time with us. Reach out on his website or, or on LinkedIn and just thank him. Make his day 
by telling him you heard this interview and when he writes his next book, maybe he'll consider coming back. So, and also if you're a listener on your, and you're subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The book is The Digital Pivot, Secrets of Online Marketing. The author is Eric Schwartzman. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.